Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Com and definitely check out those shows as well. Also, just a quick note that submissions for the Zibby Awards are open and will close on September 15th. Go to zibbyowens.com and you will find the Zibby Awards open submissions where we celebrate all the under-celebrated parts of a book, like the best spine, the best author's note, the best table of contents. And authors can nominate their own best publicists, best editors, and so on. There will be an in-person award ceremony in October in New York. You will not want to miss it. Go to zibbyowens.com. Sloane Crosley is the author of cult classic, A Novel. She is also the author of the novel, The Clasp, and three essay collections, Look Alive Out There, and the New York Times bestsellers, I Was Told There'd Be Cake, and How Did You Get This Number? A two-time finalist for the Thurber Prize for American Humor and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, she lives in New York City. Welcome, Sloan. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss cult classic and everything else. (laughs) And everything else. Everything else under the sun. Happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually just watching your event with Emma Straub that you had posted on Twitter. And I was like, this is so cool. Because I remember a couple years ago before the pandemic, I went to an event at Books or Magic with John Kenny and Courtney Mom. And I was in the back and there, were, there weren't that many people there. And I was like, I can't believe it because this is so amazing. And I was like, wouldn't it be great if somebody was recording this? And like, no matter where you went, you could just get these recordings. And then I, there I was on Twitter. And I was like, oh, see, yeah, you know, it all, now it's all happening. <laughs> it's all happening. Although they, you know, they position just a, a regular old iPhone on a tripod right in front of you and you sort of forget 
that it's there. And it feels very uh, like deep state at the end when they're like, wait to the people at home. And I'm like, hello, NSA. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it was a blast. She's amazing. And um, obviously it's done this once or twice before. Um, But that was the last stop. Not the last stop. I'm also going out to Long Island this summer, but um, basically the last stop on my book tour was 10 cities. So it was nice. It was a nice welcome home. Are you exhausted? A little bit, but it's so, I mean, it's so funny. It is genuinely great to see people's full bodies again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was happy not sharing my full body, but okay. I see what you're saying. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I don't know what they feel. I haven't asked them about their opinions about mine, but I feel like nice to interact with them, to see them. Because also so much of what I write is at least attempted humor. And so doing all these events, you know, not many because I didn't have a book out, but the events I did do over Zoom throughout the pandemic, like it's like reading into a green screen or something, you know, where you're like, I, I kind of need to know what you're laughing at or what is not funny. I mean, David Sedaris infamously does this. He like goes around and is much more fluid than I am where he'll, uh, what people don't laugh at or what they do, you can see him crossing things out and taking notes on material, which I don't have that much investment in my readers. <laughs> it's crazy. I just went to this preview play performance of Jody Pico's new play Between the Lines um, oh, at the yeah. Second Stage Theater. I took like a group from of Moms Don't Have Time to community people. Anyway, the director got up at first and he was like, okay, if you don't know what a preview is, we are all going to be listening and anything you laugh at, we're going to keep. And if nobody laughs, it's out of there. So we are listening laugh at your own will, but that's what's going to happen. That's actually an interesting social experiment because it's basically saying, I'm going to unwind your instinct to go to the theater and be generous, right? Or I'm going to actually make you more British. So you're going to, <laughs> boo, it, you're going to boo it what you don't like because it'll be more helpful to me. Yes. Um, like, but to unwind that polite, that like American, almost puritanical politeness at like the theater, which we think is a big deal. Yes. That's probably hard to do. There was no booing. There was no, no booing at all. But, uh, and I didn't even, after I got into it, I forgot that I was supposed to be like actively laughing, you know, as opposed to like, huh. (laughs) Are you an active listener? Actively laughing? No, I was actively listening, but I don't always like laugh out loud all the time. You know, I'm I'm like, oh, that's funny. You know? Yeah. Which is. You do the LA thing where you say it's funny. Yes. Like I'm actually in are. LA right now. Maybe that's why. Yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah. Okay. The LA thing to me is very like, that's funny. And I'm like, or alternatively, you could laugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My husband says that to me all the time. He's like, if it was funny, you would be laughing. I'm like, well, yeah. you know, I, I acknowledge yeah. it's funny, but maybe I, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> but now what I want to do after watching this this morning, your interview, I want to start a podcast where everybody just like throws up the book event audio. The book event audio? Like I want to start a podcast so that people can listen. Like I would have liked to have that on a podcast. So I could have been like, well, I mean, I guess I could have done it anyway, but like, what if everybody just- oh, the book event audio. I think yeah. audio and I'm like, is I don't- What do you okay. think? No, so like one no. day it would be like, you and Emma Straub, and then the next episode would be in London, yeah. and it would be, you know, whoever. Well, I guess it depends on when you hit people on their sort of promotional gauntlet, right? So, like, I feel like my LA event I did with Judy Greer, it was really lovely, who really also, you know, I mean, she's very smart, but because I think she doesn't normally interview authors, like, did her homework to a degree that most authors don't do. She read the book twice. Wow. She came back and read the class. 
to like look for, for like sort of similar DNA. She, you know, had like already read my nonfiction and I'm like, oh man, this is more work than like Salman Rushdie would do. I can guarantee you, you know, for one of these events, but like, so some of them are recorded some of them aren't. So like, if you had hit me two weeks ago, I wouldn't have had anything to offer you. In other words, if you did it with other authors, but now I have a couple of recorded events. Right. But yeah, she was really, she was really great to talk to as well. But it's, just, it's always interesting to see the different angles that people bring to those events. Yes. You know, like, I mean, I feel like Emma's obviously is going to be more like literary, a little more process-based, if you will. Although I always find that's such a, a giant word for what I do. Like it's not, an, it's, it's both, it's both too much and too little at once. Like I'm like process sounds <laughs> like how you would, you know, put together this pen. And I'm like, well, what I do is, you know, more elevated than that. But also like, it's a lot of like pacing and eating cheese. So I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> process anyway but judy's was about like like the the roles of the different women in the book and stuff like that you know she's not it's just sort of interesting interesting but yeah you should do it you should start with a little audio clip, clip. It can be interesting. like a late night talk show house it's like can we roll the clip yeah i mean i wouldn't even be on it i would just like put the audio up for people who aren't yeah. there. anyway whatever i'll talk about this later <laughs> i thought this was like a brilliant idea but it is you know six o'clock in la so maybe it's not going to seem like a good idea once i've finished oh this couple gosh. Of no no all good Wait, all good i love it how are you how are you feeling too are you i'm good okay yeah. good. Good, good why should i not be feeling good didn't you have the, the rona the covid oh ever didn't everybody at this point i mean yes i'm i'm yes, but like i had mine in january so yeah no i had mine in april yeah. Now, yeah, I'm good. But thank you, okay. though. That's very okay, sweet. Good, good, good. Yes, well, I mean, yeah. I could, I could go through the litany of complaints about my body, but I think I'll, I'll spare yeah. you the. Uh... <laughs> That's my favorite thing to talk about. But okay. <laughs> well, how are you? How are you feeling? What, what body? No body ailments. My body is fine. My only ailment right now is I was uh, telling a friend I was like, my right hand is like weirdly a little like swollen and hurts, hmm. and. I really do think it's like probably some either like tendonitis or like a little bit of like early osteoarthritis or something. I don't know. I'll go to a doctor and see if, you know, it turns out it needs to be amputated. <laughs> but my friend was like, well, you just signed all these books on book tour. And I'm like, well, that makes it sound like a very vain industry, like um, injury rather, where there were definitely people on the book tour. Not that many people <laughs> that I hurt my hand from signing a book. <laughs> It's, I think it's unrelated, but it's like kind of a nice fantasy that it's this like vanity injury. <laughs> totally. I would go with that. I would, I would say, you know, I'm having just like, I don't know. Carpet yeah. Yeah. All the, I mean, it's been. I know. hurt my wrist from all the soup I've been pouring for, for people in need, you know? Yes, exactly. So I've, I sprained it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, Let's talk about your novel for a second. Sure. Classic. <laughs> I have been following you, reading your work, like everybody probably out there forever, and just so appreciating all the essays and all the work and how you can go from essays to fiction and essays to fiction. And now we have a novel. So the essays are put aside and maybe, I don't know, do, do novels require something different than cheese? I mean, is there a different something on the menu when you're writing a novel from an essay? It's mostly Gouda. Mostly Gouda. Just okay. like a fancy cheese as opposed to just like a cheddar of nonfiction. Um, no, it is funny because like it is does feel like teams the way you're like, okay, now you're on now. It does feel like Red Rover kind of yep, yep. like then one on over. And that's actually how it feels almost creatively. But yeah, they don't require, I mean, I think on a sort of nitty-gritty level, and this is a bit, you know, I mentioned this to Emma, so I forgive me if I am repeating myself, but uh, they 
they're very similar ways that you describe, you know, your eye is going to be your eye and you describe things through like a similar prison on like a, a prism, excuse me. <laughs> wow. Freudian. <laughs> prison writing. How do you really feel about your job, Sloan? Let's know, get right down to it. Um, similar prism, but where, you know, it's just your eyes going to be out your eye and your, you know, your eye for detail or how you would uh, perceive something. It's going to have some sort of universality across from fiction and nonfiction, but it's all all about like what serves the character. Whereas like, there's a little bit of ease with nonfiction because I'm like, well, it's what serves me. It's what serves my voice. It's what's going to get across my experience of this thing that actually happened or this thing that I've been observing or, you know, my politics, whatever it is. But for fiction, it's just, it's the basic throwing of your voice, right? So you can't, it's all about like making sure the jokes make sense for the character, for the person, that they move the story along, that they're not just, I mean, you want the thing to be funny or you as in me, as in one, <laughs> and entertaining. But I, I, I also want it to be funny. Yeah, so, okay. exactly. But you can feel like the, is this important for me? Or is it important for the characters? There's a little bit more of a selflessness in fiction, not just in the, you know, there's less of the vowel I, but there is a little bit more of, I I really don't like to say world building because it's such a Hollywood term, but I don't know. I mean, that is what you're doing. So that. Let's go with it. Again, I'm in LA, so we can, we can. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When in Rome, you know, (laughs) Or eat organic as the Romans did. <laughs> Maybe we should back up and you should tell listeners what cult classic is about. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> we'll just keep them guessing. How fun. Yeah, I, right? I mean, whatever. We'll have the attention span for that now, right? <laughs> just sit and, and just wonder. Okay, so it's about a woman who is in her late 30s in New York and uh, is engaged. She's in a serious relationship. And she's worked for a magazine called Modern Psychology, which is by far the least creative part of the book. It's definitely like basically me taking psychology today and you know twisting it. But in the book, it folds. And her former boss, this man named Clive, um, who was always sort of a cult of personality, larger than life character, has sort of transferred his manipulation talents to becoming this kind of psych pop guru. And he's started this club that could be a cult out of an abandoned synagogue on the Lower East Side. And he's completely gutted it into this sort of mind control experiment. It's a combination, without giving away too much, of various tactics. It's a sort of a romantic healing place. So uh, it, it gives people closure through different packages. So he's running this experiment on his friend and former employee, our heroine, where she steps within a five block radius of that building she will run into an ex-boyfriend. So he's sort of gathering all these men there and she has to make this choice to go through with it or not, whether she goes ahead and does it. And it's one of these things where it seems very like speculative fiction and sort of outlandish, but I feel like the more I talk about it to other people, um, the more the book has been out, the more I realize it's really this sort of realized 3D version of what happens if you look at your phone and you're looking at a text exchange from years ago that you should not be looking at. And there's even a line in the book at some point with at the risk of being gross and quoting myself, there's a line at some point in the book where she says that, you know, she's seeing these men and going through like these old sort of paraphernalia of them or archives of them that she has old letters, old mementos, old text exchanges. And, you know, it's causing these things that were supposed to be memories to become emotions. 
and you know, there's still memories for them. So they're not on this even playing field. So there's a lot about like morality and closure and just sort of a philosophical approach to romance in the book, but that's what it is. It's a, it's a mind control cult comedy about um, meets a rom-com. And dare I ask where this came from? Where did <laughs> it is? I'm very flattered because people do ask this and they haven't asked it of anything else I've written. Um, but I think it's, it, I think it implies hopefully creativity or something a little bit unusual that, you know, I mean, I, I like to think that Bright Easton almost got asked that for American Psycho, but maybe not. Maybe people were scared <laughs> to ask. <laughs> so I feel like the general themes of the book, the general sort of an, in broad strokes came from really avoiding writing about romance, about dating, about relationships, and also about New York, because New York is so threaded into my work. It's my home. I live here and I write nonfiction. Like, what do we think is going to happen? It's not going to be a bunch of stories about, you know, chopping wood in Utah. I wish that sounds nice, <laughs> but it's not going to be that. And so I have always been not pigeonholed, but there's an assumption that I write about dating a certain sort of, I mean, I, I don't mean chip lit, but I mean like chickiness. Just a, a general, you know, just the way things are sort of how I'm sort of disseminated into the world that I thought, okay, I'm not going to make this worse. These assumptions that I write about dating by writing about dating. And so I was avoiding it for like a hundred essays. This thing that means so much to me, that's so much a part of my life. That's a part of, even if you're married, it doesn't matter. That is like a whole category of everyone's life. Even if there's nothing there, it's a huge category, especially then. And so I wanted to do it, but I thought like, you know, I mean, you read all these books. I mean, it's, these are very difficult subjects to tackle in a unique way because everybody writes about romance. A lot of people write about New York. And so I wanted to tackle it in a way that felt a little unusual. So then I just sort of had to wait like a tiny baby cobra <laughs> to strike <laughs> until I found something that felt like me to something that I was interested in. And I feel like, you know, I do live here. And so walking around, seeing all these cool you know, abandoned synagogues or, you know, synagogues that are owned only by one person or that have been changed into a cultural center that they've had all these lives. The churches in New York are very similar too, but most of them are still churches. Mm -hmm. There's something, you know, a little bit changing hands about uh, synagogues. And there were a couple on the Lower East Side that I just thought, you know, maybe ultimately this book comes from real estate envy. Like, wouldn't wouldn't it be cool if this magical, insane you know, this, this sort of derelict building that if you snuck into the inside, the way I describe it is it looks like a squared off version of the Guggenheim. You know, wouldn't it be cool if that existed? So I think that sort of slight, just pure sort of almost childlike Willy Wonka or Roald Dahl kind of influence creativity, but applied to a comedy of manners. And so once I had them both, I think that's where it came from. But I don't remember, like, I think there are writers that remember writing the first line you know, my mother died today or, you know, I, I, <laughs> but I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember the first line of it. You want yeah. me to read it to you? Oh, no, no. I remember the first line. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I remember. I was like, oh no, don't do that. But no, I don't, I'm kidding. When I think of the early images, I think of the first time. So before she knows that there's this sort of kind of plan afoot to manipulate mm. her, our heroine, you know, she's just running into an ex-boyfriend on the street, which is a thing that happens. It's not remarkable. It certainly doesn't only happen in New York. And so I think of the first time she's in this sort of hip restaurant and leaves and runs into the first boyfriend. She passes the bar area of the restaurant and there are all these uh, sort of 
bespoke cool cocktails with sprigs of things in them. And the, you know, I, and these patrons sort of attempting to shift in their chairs that are actually nailed down to the floor. And that is like the first thing I, I know that's not how the book starts, but that's like, I think that might be the first thing I wrote. I love it. Hey, grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Yeah. So to get away from the book, which, you know, sure. we can come back to, but oh, please, I've spent 10 cities talking about the book. We can talk about anything. Okay, great. <laughs> so you have written and I, you know, I'm not as prepared as Judy, but I did go back and peruse a lot of your old essays and everything, including, um, the one that w- one was particularly resonant to me because I'm constantly apologizing for things. You wrote one in the New York Times about why women apologize, oh, yeah. almost you know, except for British men and women. Like people aren't always apologizing for things as often, which I do constantly. So I'm going to work on that. So thank you for that. You know, oh, you're welcome. Yeah, but you know, all the things from being at the Vanity Fair, a Vanity Fair writer, and all your bold type columns, and Mad Men, and all your New York writing, and just all the this voluminous collection of all of your stuff. So how did your, how did you get on this track? How did you become this like literary it girl (laughs) sensation that you have risen to become? Where did it start? And like, when did you know you were a writer? Right. Okay. I just, I'm just had this immediate image of my, of my business card saying like literary it girl. Love it. Just handing them out to people. There's no number, you know, you'll guess it if you know it. (laughs) No. Okay. So it, what happened? Maybe it could be like literary at itgirl.com. At itgirl. That it would be funny. Girl. Yeah. La, la, la. <laughs> yeah. That's not necessarily how I self-identify, but I also <laughs> wouldn't pick it out of bed. You know, I'm like, that sounds good. sounds like people are reading my work and however they get to it. That sounds, that sounds good to me. But so I, well, I don't want to take you back too far. Like it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> Go ahead. I wanted to work in publishing after college very much. And I didn't, I wasn't really sure about being a writer. I kind of wanted to be an archaeologist, actually, which has weirdly some overlap. I was going to say, yeah. there are some similarities there. Yeah, there are weirdly some similarities. The problem is the similarities end with statistics, which I was not incredibly good at. And so mm-hmm. you don't have to do any of that when you're when you're writing. You do have to do that when it's a science. But so I worked for a literary agency and then I uh, moved to publicity. And then one day, this is how I really got started writing. And then one day uh, when I was 24, I was moving apartments and I locked myself out of two different apartments in the same day while moving. So the first one, you know, I moved a box, shut the door. I, and you know, you know how instantly you're like, that doorknob's not going to turn when I open it. 
had to call a locksmith, had to call the same locksmith later that day. At the end of the day, when he was giving me my second bill, like nine hours later, I had this doormat that said deja vu frontwards and backwards. And he points with his pen. He goes, that's a funny doormat. And it was the first time I felt this sort of sharp relief of like the essay format. And I felt I'm going to write about this. And so I did. And a friend from the Village Voice published it. And so I was started publishing for the Village Voice, for the New York Observer, for the New York Times. And then I started working for sort of Playboy, GQ, all these different places while I was working at Random House for like 12, 10, 10 years. 12 years total in publishing, 10 years at Random House. And then I published my first two books while working there which was really crazy to take your sort of vacation to go on book tour. I think that's a young person's game. You know, now I'm like, no way. And then, yeah, it just sort of took off from there where I just started freelancing for all these different places as well as writing. And then, you know, back when uh, Graydon Carter was running Vanity Fair, I did the hot type column for a little bit, which is sort of dovetails with what you do. You know, I feel like that, like a lot of me, you know, that's sort of how I you know, got my career, I suppose. It's not a, a path I would necessarily... I would recommend to anyone, like, listen, go be a book publicist, arrange other authors' tour schedules for a decade, and then publish a paperback original collection of essays. Hope it takes off. Like, that's really a great, not a great path. But I do miss sometimes, I mean, I write a little bit. I write this books column for, like, the newly revamped uh, Departures magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll still review for the Times. But I do miss the having it be my job to force feed people books. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to do it in what, and that's what I liked about the hot type column or different, you know, sort of, you've got to read this. Now I just do it one-on-one. I do it in person. I mean, you're welcome to come help me anytime. You can, yeah. if you would like to help in this <laughs> you need endeavor. you a research assistant, I am your girl. Yeah, like, totally. I, I'll just send you my books because you probably don't get any books of your own sent to you. So I'll just... No, no. But it is, it is a funny, but the, in terms of the lit it girl thing, not to turn this into a therapy session. Go ahead. But, um, Let's do it. You're yeah. like, bring it. But it is interesting. I think it's because there was a specific moment and I can, this, I can kind of pinpoint unlike, you know, the first line of a book or like how your career got started. You're like, I don't know. I'm just working hard and sleeping. (laughs) Um, I will say there was an instant when, before my first book came out, the New York Observer on the cover of the art section did this huge piece that said the most popular book publicist in New York or something like that. I don't know. I should know because it's framed somewhere in my bathroom. So, you know, Tina Brown said you should always frame your press but, or have other people frame it really, but keep it in the bathroom so no one thinks you're like a megalomaniac like, or an egomaniacal person. But anyway, sorry, long story, is that I think everyone on staff, because I've been pitching them books on the other side of the industry, assumed that everybody knew me. So they almost like positioned it as like our girl, like local girl makes good, which has been you know, partially great and partially like a real albatross at the same time, you know, but that's sort of the moment that I think changed. I do feel though, I mean, do you know Todd Doughty? Yeah. Yeah, So like when his, when he told me, cause I had, I can't, I can't even get a new word out. As a book publicist, he had pitched me many clients. So I had worked with him on email for all that. And then when he had a book, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so, like, I felt like this sense of ownership or something, of right? Because and I'm like, oh, look, you like, you went from that to this. And so I was so excited to have little pieces of hope on. And, you know, it, there's like something about watching someone rise where you feel invested in it or something. I don't know. Well, yeah, because also if you're getting sent 
it, I mean, it's, it's emotional and it's also just a numbers game, right? If you're getting sent all these books, which you are, and you have some personal connection or something where the, just the name that registers, you're going to have, you're going to be like, oh, all these fish are going by. That's a different colored fish. You know, just the ability to spot it and to differentiate it is very helpful. But I worked, I worked for Vintage Books Publicity back when they had their own really dedicated publicity department that was pretty populated. And it is, I don't know what they put in the water. Because the traditional thing, you know, even if you watch pop culture or, or live in the world, is that there's the editor that has a secret novel under his or her desk, right? Mm-hmm. Not the publicist necessarily. But vintage publicity in the space of like five years had Hanya Yanagahara, wow. me, a writer named Paul Yu, so now a teacher at Harvard, a professor at Harvard, and he has several books, um, a man named Ethan Rutherford, who has a great short story collection called The Peripatetic Kaufman. And even like there, there was a woman, or is still a woman, Jen Marshall, who's now a literary agent, who contributed to like this very famous anthology called The Bitch in the House. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. It's a crazy thing. And so I feel like, you know, it's not, it's not as rarefied as it, as it seems, but of course, being good publicists, we try to make it seem rarefied. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we try to make it seem special, but yeah, I think that there is, something nice. I mean, what's interesting though, is that if Todd then went, you know, sort of sallied forth and had more books, I wonder, depending on what they were, I wonder if the fact that everybody knew him would start to, would help or hurt eventually. Like I think the first one, it helps. This is such a specific sort of non-problem to have. <laughs> the first, I mean, it's sort of silly to, to talk about it in such detail, but like, you know, the first one, it's like, like I said, local girl makes good. The same thing you felt with him. But then after a while, people I think are a little skittish about covering their friends or they feel like because for the same reasons they want, you know, they want to cover them originally, there's this thought of like, oh, well, everyone already knows that person because they know that person. Media is a very uh, self-centered place. I don't know if you know that, but <laughs> um, very solipsistic. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, but it's a really it's a really great. But I do miss that feeling of like I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees, you know, and really promoting books in that way. You know, when I when I quit to write full time, there was definitely the sense of oh wow, like you're living the dream, and I'm like I'm living a dream, but like I miss like finding interesting and creative ways to get people to cover books. I really, I really enjoyed it. Well, you know, freelance. I freelance. I'll freelance. I'll, I'll hire you. I have a book exactly. coming out. You can there just you help go. me. Yeah, I can. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> what, uh, okay, so what, uh, do you have your next book? Wait, actually, I read about what your next book is. Hold on. Grief is yeah. for people. Is that what it's called? It is. That is what it, it shall be called. And tell me yeah. more about that. Yeah, sure. So um, that's interesting. You know, when you're, we were talking about before, you know, okay, fiction, nonfiction. I don't know if I'm going to continue to go, you know, every other one. Like, it's not yeah. like I'm like, tiling a kitchen. <laughs> I don't know if it'll be that even. But yeah, the next one is uh, Grief is for People, uh, which I keep thinking of these two books, even though cult classic obviously has some like pathos and darkness to it, and hopefully some like heft. And this book about grief is funny. I do think of them as like, like the married child and like the sullen child. <laughs> so cool classic is the fun one. And then just you wait. <laughs> this one is about, is nonfiction, sort of following structurally the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief. Mm-hmm. Um, even though those, you know, are not clean. Anyone who's experienced grief knows that they go 
they meld into each other, they bleed. But for narrative purposes, they, they're very, very clean. <laughs> so it's about a burglary I had. I had a robbery in late 2019 and all my jewelry was stolen. And it turns out that I was sort of being targeted or stopped in a certain way. And then a month later, my old sort of mentor and boss at Vintage and best friend died by suicide. Oh. And then COVID hit. And so, you know, the COVID, all of it is really, it's mostly about Russell. It's mostly about him and our friendship. I mean, I think I was unfortunately very inspired by real life events for that one. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, I looked at books, obviously like Joan Didion, but also like Truth and Beauty. Mm -hmm. So it's very much about, about that. But it's, yeah, it's interesting. I don't think for any of my books, I could be accused of identifying a marketplace. (laughs) Unfortunately, <laughs> otherwise I would have written about Abraham Lincoln and vampires, you know, and, and how to eat blueberries and save your life or whatever. <laughs> but I feel like I, for this one, a little bit, you know, obviously my book about, you know, Pope Classic is not, oh, the world needs a book about a, um, like a mystery romantic comedy about a mind control cult. <laughs> maybe, it does, maybe it does. But this one I felt a little bit, and I don't know if I've succeeded or will succeed at this, it's not to say that, but I did feel a little bit like when I was, so sad about all these different things, but mostly obviously about the suicide. Things I had to read were either self-help, some of it, which is very high quality self-help, but it was still self-help or like Kay Jameson. Um, mm-hmm. If you've ever read Night Falls Fast is fantastic or obviously the Didion. And, you know, there are tons of books about grief, but there was something about how ridiculous I found the whole thing that I thought I thought, I think I might be able to hit this from a slightly different angle. So I guess in that sense, it is like the fiction, you know, where you just sort of wait. You know, we all live the same, not the same lives, but we all are told the same, you know, taught the same lessons. There are certain certain universal themes in this world. And I think you then just wait to jump. Maybe you wait for your entry point. And unfortunately, I was not waiting for this. Unlike the romantic comedy, you know, I was not... I was not thinking that this was going to happen, but it did. And then, yeah, it gave me an unfortunate way in. But so hopefully that'll come out the end of next year, if not the year after. Well, I'm I'm very sorry about Russell. And, Thank you. But I am looking forward to reading that. And I think that's a book a lot of people need right now. So I hope so. Yeah. Sloan, thank you. I know we were kind of all over the place this morning, but uh, oh, no, it's, thanks it's, for going with it. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's probably, it's, it's me. I'll, uh, I talk in circuitous fashion. <laughs> no, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. And... Thank you for having me. I really, it was great. Okay. All right. I hope to see you soon. Have a good morning. Bye. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.